Welcome to the Powered by Age, age-friendly city Zoomcast reality-style podcast. We are movers and shakers, shaking up the old notion of silent, helpless, invisible seniors. This is a new series of podcasts funded by the City of Vancouver and the 411 Senior Center Society. As PBA AFC ambassadors, we raise awareness, share our original stories and poems, inform, advocate, and involve seniors in discussing important social issues. In short, these podcasts will help us, you, in creating an age-friendly city for Vancouver today, tomorrow the world. You can hear us everywhere podcasts are heard. Hello, welcome to our pre-Labor Day podcast creation meeting. This is Powered by Age. I'm Charlotte Farrell, your host. And as we always do, I'm going to ask each person to do their 15 seconds of fame introduction. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Labor Day, uh, getting some information on how you've pivoted, what does it mean to you, and we're going to have some creative arts, some people that have uh, stories and poetry to share. So starting off, Judith, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Judith Rainey, and I'm a member of 411 Seniors Center and Powered by Age. And I've um, written some lyrics to some songs. That's my claim. I will pass on the torch. Chris? Um, I'm Chris, and uh, I, I belong to um, uh, Britannia Community Center on the east side. And uh, also in that, in that, in that program uh, to Quirky Queer Imaging and Writing Collective for Elders. And we write and image. Wonderful. We've enjoyed some of that and maybe hearing some more today. Uh, Sylvie. Hi, I'm Sylvie Anderson. I'm first time back in a couple of months. I've been taking a hiatus to explore my talents as a gardener, which apparently are not non-existent. Um, <laughs> not having a great deal of success, but nevertheless, uh, I'm surrounded by consultants, so, so eventually we'll get it. Uh, yeah, so I'm really happy to be back, seeing all your lovely faces again today. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Uh, Leslie? Yes, Leslie Hebert. I live in New Westminster. I'm an ESL teacher and a writer and a member of Century House. Okay, Pat? I'm Pat, and I could probably just say ditto to what Chris said, but I'll say it again. Uh, I am involved with Britannia Center uh, through Quirky, the Queer Imaging and Writing Collective for Elders. And although I don't have any, uh, I, there's no one from Quirky that we have to read something. If I, if I can, I'm going to look at some of the things I've written and maybe I can read something today. Okay, that's great. I do have something, Pat. Great. Well, that'll that? be two. <laughs> so, Chris and Pat. Uh, Luke? Yeah, I'm Luke, and I'm here for tech support for 411 and Power Beige and anyone else that needs it. Okay, Joel. I'm Joel. I, I'm Luke's partner at Podstream Studios and uh, here for moral support while he's dealing with tech support. So, something to that. I'd, um, <clears throat> I've got a guest that uh, I will introduce now, if that's okay. Yes. So uh, this is Kaylee, right? Uh, well, I guess I don't know where she's showing up on your screens, but she's right below me on my matrix. But um, she's from UBC in a research program that Luke and I are working with that will be somewhat similar in terms of what we're doing as, um, here with the Zoom meetings. Uh, it's a virtual roundtable that's going to be bringing in a number of people from around the world. Um, to talk about outdoor activities and what's going on with COVID and outdoor activities. And the, the reason I wanted to bring her in, one, is to see what we're doing here and how we're sort of approaching this um, creation of podcasts out of Zoom meetings. And two, because even though the project that we're working on is specifically targeted for uh, 
children and parents of children and outdoor things that we need to be concerned with in, in the COVID age now, uh, it will be uh, viable to take the learning from that project and apply it to other um, population groups. So for example, um, I mean, it could be anybody in outdoor, outdoor activities, but right now with the, the return to school and everything, the focus is just dealing with the small subset of, um, of children as the, the research focus group. So uh, on that note, this is Kaylee, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, this Zoom meeting for four in one seniors and Powered by Age. Thanks everyone. I'm really excited to be here today and listen in. Um, I'm putting a link in the chat just in case you want to check out the event. There's some details there um, and registration is open. There's no fee or anything. So if you're interested, you're welcome to join us. And then, yeah, I'll be working with Joel and Luke to change the pod those roundtables into podcasts. Oh, wonderful. Last week, our program was around walkability, and we talked with uh, people in the city that are encouraging people using their bikes. But we also brought forth one of the concerns from seniors is that to do more walking <laughs> you need more benches and uh to make paths we get we got a survey judith forwarded a survey that people can participate in on uh what things make it better for people are the pop-up plazas the uh, extended parking for outside restaurants and other things so we'll be lots of having lots of information to share with you okay today this is our pre-Labor Day show, and we're going to start with uh, a little video. It's a TED Talk, and it's on what does it mean to Canadians and Americans? And we've heard the word pivot a lot, so I think you might note as you're listening to this, what are some of the ways that Labor Day has pivoted from its beginning? How's this for a strange idea? A day off from work in honor of work itself. Actually, that is what Labor Day, celebrated in the United States and Canada on the first Monday of every September, is all about. The first American Labor Day was celebrated in New York City on September 5, 1882, as thousands of workers and their families came to Union Square for a day in the park. It was not a national holiday, but had been organized by a union to honor workers and their hard efforts with a rare day of rest, halfway between July 4th and Thanksgiving. There were picnics and a parade, but there were also protests. The workers had gathered not just to rest and celebrate, but to demand fair wages, the end of child labor, and the right to organize into unions. During the period known as the Industrial Revolution, many jobs were difficult, dirty, and dangerous. People worked for 12 hours, six days a week, without fringe benefits such as vacations, health care, and pensions. And if you were young, chances are you were doing manual labor instead of your ABCs and fractions. Children as young as 10 worked in some of the most hazardous places like coal mines or factories filled with boiling vats or dangerous machines. Trying to win better pay, shorter hours, and safer conditions, workers had begun to form labor unions in America and Canada. But the companies they worked for often fought hard to keep unions out and to suppress strikes. At times, this led to violent battles between workers and business owners, with the owners often backed up by the police or even the military. In the following years, the idea of Labor Day caught on in America, with official celebrations reaching 30 states. But then came the violent Haymarket Square Riot of 1886, which led to the deaths of several policemen and workers in Chicago and the execution of four union leaders. After that, many labor and political groups around the world had begun to mark Haymarket Square on May 1st, which became known as International Workers' Day. In 1894, President Grover Cleveland signed the law making Labor Day a federal holiday in America, 
only days after he had sent 12,000 soldiers to end a violent railroad strike that resulted in the death of several people. The original September date was kept, partly to avoid the more radical associations of May 1st. Canada also created its Labor Day in 1894. But in spite of this new holiday, it would be a long time before the changes that workers wanted became a reality. In 1938, during the Great Depression that left millions without jobs, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed a law calling for an eight-hour workday, a five-day work week, and an end to child labor, some of the first federal protections for American workers. As America and Canada celebrate Labor Day, most of the two countries' children enjoy a day off from school. But it is important to remember that there was a time that every day was a Labor Day for children in America and Canada. And unfortunately, the same fact remains true for millions of children around the world today. So, what are some of your reflections about Labor Day? Well, as I was listening, um, the narrator was saying, you know, they had to work as many as 12 hours and children as young as 10. Well, the history of the Industrial Revolution that I learned in the UK was that people worked 16 to 18 hours a day and it was children as young as seven and eight. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of those children were in the cotton, in the, in the cotton mills. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, my own grandfather uh, went down the pit uh, at the age of 12. He was looking after a pit pony. Mm. Well, part of it remind, um, just brought to mind uh, what's happening with, with in the States now, you know, going after uh, people who are, are protesting, uh, you know, social justice stuff. It's, very familiar and with, with Trump, of course, doing it. Yeah, people, I was surprised to see that federal troops, you know, were sent for the railway strike because, you know, we we're quite alarmed around the erosion of democracy, but kind of the pivots and looking back at that point in history that right a few days after sending federal troops there, you know, he signed the Labor Day law into action. So, it's a, a, an interesting point for people who are doing protests now to look at, you know, well, we thought we made a shift from that. We thought we had pivoted away and to be more supportive of, you know, people protesting for, for justice. What are some ways that you have seen here in Canada a pivot away from Labor Day as a day of rest or Labor Day as a day of recognizing unions? There's a uh, there's an irony to Labor Day now because a lot of the workforce has moved from being labor to contract workers in this gig economy. Mm -hmm. So technically, they're not considered labor in the the old definition of labor versus capital sense. They're all outside workers to what would be a unionizable labor force. It's now just contractors. Yeah, I think that's an issue happening with. Uh, Lyft and, um, and Uber. Uber. That's, um, that's the, the most cited example, but, and this has been going on for years, you know, well before the, the Trump stuff all started happening, that the shift towards offloading risk from the company onto the worker, mm. the contract worker, his or herself, or onto the government, that's just been the, the trend, and now we're seeing the results of that years later. Um, so. We should, we should think about what the word labor means and who it covers and how it should be able to cover most people rather than uh, what we're left with now. Yeah, uh, downloading expenses onto the workers too. I know I just found out that uh, all the people that deliver food for, you know, skip the dishes, uh, they have to buy their own insulated bags, mm. you know, which seems very petty. But, you know, when you're making such a low wage, that's a big expense. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have seen um, 
Ken Loach film called Sorry We Missed You, I think it's called, uh, and that it's about this Uber economy. And um, it certainly was eye-opening for me I, I, because I heard of Uber um, mm. and really not paid a lot of attention. Yeah. But this really shines a light on the, the practices. Yeah, I saw that. It was really, it, really, I thought you, it was yeah. really well done. Yeah. Well, um, and uh, Ken Lo, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for him because he, he does a lot of work around Tyneside. And I don't know if you saw I, Daniel Blake, but that was another mm -hmm. one of his, um, which was uh, about, uh, it, it, was, um, it was extraordinary. But um, it, it seems, you know, there's a different blush on the exploitation. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the exploitation hasn't stopped. And um, I guess uh, I became complacent because I too, my, my dad was a coal miner. And believe me, the conditions in which he worked were abysmal, abysmal. And he was a very strong um, labor man. Actually, he was um, communist, if truth be known. Um, not that he rammed that down our throats at all. But he, um, and I couldn't understand it because the, the spin that I was getting on um, labor unions as I grew up was that, you know, they, they were petty minded. They were um, striking or threatening to strike because they didn't, uh, you know, they have an extra two minutes on their, their, you know, lunch break or something like that. So, um, so the, I, I, I kind of, I pivoted. I pivoted, it was right in my home. This thing was right in my home and I pivoted away from it. Um, I guess it's a, it's a part of a bigger story. Um, but, um, and, and really because I wasn't thinking about it after I left home, it wasn't in my face all the time. I guess I thought, oh, well, it's gone away. You know, that now the unions are very strong and, um, the, the exploitation has, um, you know, disappeared. It's not happening anymore. But that, that's simply not true. The, the exploitation pivoted. It just went elsewhere. But it, it exists just as much today as it ever did. And certainly for the less developed parts of the world, um, it was child labor. My, my grandmother, my, my father's mother, left school when she was eight and uh, she was sent to learn how to milk cows, sent away from home. And that was only the beginning of her life. Uh, later on, she was sent, she was sold in the marketplace and sent uh, up country in Northumberland to uh, work um, for farmers there, indentured. Um, and, and <laughs> That kind of thing is within my memory. You know, I, I, I knew my, my grandmother and, and my father too, although he died very young. And I doubt that many people who celebrate Labor Day here actually know those stories. And, and it's just another day off, right? right? We get one holiday a month, you know, so Labor Day is just one of it. And, and, and um, that kind of thing has, has been lost. But the exploitation certainly hasn't. One of yeah. the, sorry, one of the things that I think about that's very current in Canada is all the stuff around foreign workers. Mm -hmm. Canada brings them in, allows companies to bring them in to do the labor. Uh, usually there's very few protections for them. Uh, in terms of the conditions they have to work in. And then, uh, and then at the end of the day, they're sent back home only to be brought back the next year. And we know that, we, we know that a lot of jobs that are taken by, by immigrants, by refugees, by foreign workers, are all ones that are underpaid where there's where the exploitation that you were talking about is there 
um, I, I saw recently that there was a movement for some of the workers to be able to get permanent resident status. Uh, but I, I haven't been paying much attention to that, so I don't know how long, how far that's gone. But, but as a country and as a government, we allow that kind of exploitation to continue. We need another protest. <laughs> well, I think it's been combined with the protests uh, when they were looking at the, the horrible health conditions that were occurring within uh, some of the... Um, care facilities, private care facilities, many of the workers were people who were refugees or people who were promised that they would get uh, expedited, some help with their citizenship. And it wasn't happening. And there's some people that have, you know, unfortunately passed away because they didn't have adequate health care or they were having to work two or three jobs. So the dots are being connected between why there have been outbreaks in different facilities with the fact that people have had to work three day three jobs in order to have a living wage and at the same time you know didn't have adequate health care so i think there's has been i don't know whether it's just in the promise or whether the the legislation has been put down but i know that they were offering a thousand dollar stipend for people to come and get trained on um COVID 19 and that they were promised they would get you know, their citizenship papers expedited. So, you know, it's a shame that it would take COVID to highlight this big gap in worker protection or worker exploitation that's happening right now in 2020 in, in a modern society like Canada. Uh -huh. I think the, the, the foreign work, the for, the, the, I'm going to just call it the nanny program, the, the um, women, primarily women who come from primarily the Philippines, not only, but certainly that's where the majority come from, and how they have to work in the same place for a significant amount of time before they're able to apply for permanent residence. And under those conditions, they can't leave their job because they know they're not going to get through. And many of these women have been sexually assaulted and abused, and, and abused from, that that's one sort of abuse. The other one is the amount of hours they have to work and the expectations that are, that are put on them and that they suffer because they, they're looking for a better life for themselves and their children. Yeah, it's also agricultural workers, restaurant workers. Um, I personally know someone who runs a restaurant and was complaining that, you know, Canadians didn't work hard enough and wanted too much money. So he was going to bring in immigrants mm -hmm. and uh, he brought them in. He thought they were wonderful because they worked so hard and uh, he put them all in a house. Uh, I think it was a house. It was always his house or a friend's house, but they were all staying in the same house anyway. So their accommodation was also tied to their employment, which is another difficult situation. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of that word pivot, uh, it's very clear for us to see how Labor Day has pivoted and how the, while there was all the protection of unions, these days, most of the workers who are, who, who are being exploited are not being protected by unions mm -hmm. or or the government or anybody else. Yeah, and also the power of the unions is weakened because um, you know there's competition among unions. You know there are sort of more employer-friendly unions that have been established over recent years as well that don't lobby so hard for their for their members. Yeah. You know, when we had our session on work and seniors, uh, that was one of the questions that was asked from uh, Minister Davies. Well, should there be more protection for older people who are back in the workforce? You know, insurance, do they think that, you know, there'll be discrimination, ageism, because older people have been associated with being at greater risk uh, for COVID, that these, you know, a lot more dis discussions have been stirred up, don't you think? There's also been, uh, I'm just reflecting on my, I've, probably spend the most of my working years in union shops one way or the other with the teachers union. 
and before that with um, United Food and Commercial Workers Union at Save On Foods because I was there for quite some time and I long enough back to remember when I started there and I wanted to go to university while also working this Save On job and they didn't like that they didn't want to have this kind of part-time workforce um, and then that happened later on they ended up uh, uh, buying out a bunch of people, including myself, so that they could they could get the part-time workers rather than the full-time, full-benefit, um, uh, higher-rate, uh, um, you know, lifetimers. Uh, so that looking at that kind of as an inflection point to this gig economy that I was talking about, and the 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 role of students in the workforce who don't have those uh, benefits and are also running up student loan student debt loads. And, uh, and coming out of this situation where they're working while going to classes and not able to necessarily focus, but in order to get through the cost of university, they got to take these jobs that don't have any benefits to them and they're, they're not there to support their schooling in any way. So it's kind of this uh, perpetuating system that um, in, in a different context, as I said, like the, the, the pivot there has moved from... Um, towards this gig gig economy and that was perpetuated by the cost of going to edu uh, going to school high education costs require going to school or going to school and getting a job uh and taking on student loans and so uh it's it's uh i don't know where to start with it or where where does anyone start with it yeah i mean i've certainly seen how the economy's pivoted uh when i first came to canada in uh 1968 the unions here were extremely powerful, um, much more, you know, they'd got much more benefits than their workers than unions in the UK had. And uh, I remember um, I was working in an office and there was a fellow in there doing some work. He was a member of a union and he was telling me, well, we're going to go on strike. And I said, well, what are you going on strike for? He says, well, um, it's just, you know, our contract's up and we just want to get more benefits and we want to go on strike. And I said, well, you know, I asked him some questions and I found out he, he'd already, he owned his own house. He had a car. He had a couple of TVs. He was living a very prosperous middle-class lifestyle. And I said to him, well, what are you going on strike for? Because, you know, he had things that people in the UK were still struggling for, right? And he said, well, you know, we've got to get an increase because some other union had just gotten an increase. And so... At that point, you know, it seemed as if the unions had so much power. And then over the years, I've seen how, you know, that's been eroded away. You know, um, employers have always, you know, always looked to erode that power. And I didn't understand that at the time. Um, and even with the supermarkets, they came with a two-tier union and they basically pitted the longtime employees against the newbies. That's exactly, I was there for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think that's happening. I, I too, when I came to Canada in 1970 and there were a lot more benefits within healthcare workers here than there were, you know, in the state, I left the state of Michigan. But then over time, I've worked long enough to see where nutritionists and health educators that used to be hard budget people being shifted over to contract employees. Again, mm -hmm. where you carry all of this stuff for consulting in the trunk of your car, are you, now we, we're forced <laughs> to operate from our home, but I really wonder if the next pivot will be, well, since you're working in your home anyhow, you know, we don't need to maintain a building for you and it might just shift more people into a gig uh, a gig economy. I'm just thinking things that are work, working closely and being able to speak about is there going to be this shift where even more people won't have the collective action of people being together in the same building uh, to talk about things that are not, you know, not yeah. right in the way their work is given. Yeah. yeah, I just read a very interesting article about that. Um, apparently, employers are finding uh, not only are they saving money with office space, but that in some cases, productivity has actually increased. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of uh, security apps and things, spy apps that you can put on people's computers now that track their keystrokes, track keywords in their Google searches to make sure they're not goofing off. 
right? So uh, they can really track home workers now in a kind of scary ways. It's like Big Brother's watching you. Yeah. But not, I, not only home workers. <laughs> when you when you're on the job too, they could they can do that equally. Depends yeah. where you work, I guess. Yeah, but you know, you figure that working at home is kind of freer, but it's yeah, actually true. not because now they've got the technology to make it just the same as if you were actually on the work site. Right. Yeah, true. Right. And keeping you tied to your desk, you know, like the people tied to their machines. If you get up to take a break, or we talked about how unhealthy, uh, last week we had a break to do movement because of how unhealthy it is to sit for an hour in a fixed position. So there isn't anyone, I mean, we'd have to look at ways of how do we represent each other or speak up about the need to not be considered cheating if you get up. 10 minutes or 15 minutes in an hour and you watch something else or exercise or whatever, uh, I think people are going to need to find new ways to, you know, collectively speak and collectively protect their, their rights. So mm -hmm. on that note, Charlotte, uh, last week I had to write an entrance exam, standardized entrance exam that uh, now is online because they can't have people writing them on site. And, uh, and they've got a pretty sophisticated system for online exam taking um, that I had to take photographs, pictures of my surroundings when I was checking in. There's, a, there's an app you have to download. Wow. Then you take pictures of the four walls, basically, of, huh. of the room you're in. Um, then a photo of your ID. And then there's somebody watching the camera from the other side to make sure that you're not leaving the frame of the camera. Cause there's a point where you can take a break and I didn't, I didn't read that there was a button I had to press to say that I'm taking a break and I just got up. And as soon as I got up, the guy who was monitoring the exam from India probably uh, was like, Hey, you can't leave your screen. And I'm like, Oh, what? <laughs> so then I pressed the button and was able to take my break. But like, you know, it could be, it could be a, uh, a tech application that's monitoring it, or it could be a, a call center worker somewhere around the world that is being paid very little to do exactly that. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't even have to be a very sophisticated technological solution as long as they've got <laughs> some non-union employee looking at, uh, looking at you from beyond. Yeah, so. one of the things when you talked about, when you mentioned students, um, the, one of the first things I remember thinking was, now we pump our own gas, we bag our own groceries. Now they have these where you just put them through the thing. And all those used to be jobs that younger people used to take. Students who were looking for, for jobs so that they could earn some money while they were going for, to school. But the technology has grown and grown and grown. And we know that none of the folks on the lower echelons are benefiting from any of this technology. The technology and the work that goes with it is all going to the corporations. And, you know, it's just, it's just sneaking in one little piece after the other. And so now, I mean, look at, look at the conversation we've just had. Um, and, and the recognition of the amount of exploitation that's happening with with workers on all different levels for all different reasons in all different occupations it's incredible it sounds like to me for labor day instead of having a picnic and going to the park we need to gather around strategy tables <laughs> and plan ways not Absolutely. to be exploited but Absolutely. has anyone heard of uh it seems like due to the way that people lost their bookings, you know, their gigs, that there's a group of concerned musicians, at least that I know, wrote a petition or for them to get some of the money that's there for um, people who were made, whose, whose work was disrupted. Do you know in any, about any of the people doing that in music? And if there are other areas where concerned uh, creative arts people have together petition to get some of that unemployment of small business relief money? Yeah, I can, uh, there, there is that money out there. Uh, as with all of this stuff, there tends to be some pretty heavy bureaucratic layers on it to get at it um, that are a little frustrating because the people who need it are not the ones who are getting it. It's the companies that have 
probably cash in the bank and have been established long enough that yes, it's, it's, it's money to help them with the downturn, but it's the, the other people, the independent musicians and all that, that don't have a company or a label or anything sort of um, able to support them while the money comes into the label and then going to the, uh, to the individual artists. So, and, and, and even with the studio, Luke and I are looking at, okay, what, what is available to us? And even as a company that's been in existence for a couple of years, it still doesn't seem like enough. We're not really legit part of the, uh, the cultural community uh, as some of the other uh, companies are to be able to get at that support, right? And, you know, just at a point where we're starting to expand, we have to show how much business we've lost, right? And that yeah. doesn't help us. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard thing when you, like a, a movie theater, people come in and you can document how many tickets you sold, but on the yeah. service industry. You when you're a startup and you're just pushing forward and then it's like, well, we expected to make this amount of money. Well, that's not good enough, right? So um, it's, a, it's tricky. Well, I think platforms for discussion is really, you know, helpful because that's what's happening. The pivot that's happening is people without a union or without those groups to represent them, people are finding new communities, are finding ways to put their voices together so that they aren't just left out in the cold. Or when people, you know, begin to protest being out in the cold that, you know, government agencies or police aren't sent to beat them up. Uh, I, I agree, uh, Charlotte, but I think that that's a first step for sure, platforms for discussion. All of this activism, it shines a light on, but, but the next, there has to be a next step. And, and what is your next step? Is it um, advocacy? Um, I, I mean, has the, have the unions run their course? Uh, has, and, and it sounds from what we've been saying that maybe they have because the people most mm -hmm. in need are, you know, are, aren't being, uh, they're not eligible to join these um, unions. Um, the unions are, aren't in the areas where they're most needed. So, so then um, what, what is the next step? Um, and uh, that involves advocacy as well as activism. It, and so, we have to have the platforms for discussion and we have to have education about adv advocacy, the means, how do we do it? Who do we contact? Can we do it ourselves? That kind of um, education. What do you think? What's your, what's your reaction to that, folks? <laughs> what do you oh, think, Judith? <laughs> I'm, um, I'm just having a lot of difficulty because I'm um, thinking along the lines that the, everything is going to get a whole lot worse and people aren't used to um, organizing themselves. Some are, like the environmental movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and the indigenous movements. But I think there's a vacuum and um, I have a sense that, well, you know, um, I'm sort of really out of the picture because I just have pensions. And um, so I'm not, really in the workforce and if i wanted to get into the workforce i would have to do it on um, a very a, a line of because i i just don't fit in uh, my whole work history is um reflects what's happened to the labor movement so, um, and I don't want to get into that because I don't want to discuss former employers. <laughs> yeah, but I think, uh, you know, we were talking about remembering the, the Grey Panthers uh, 
at the time that the Black Panthers Party was addressing um, issues of rights, issues of things like breakfast programs for school children, um, discrimination, a lot of things, the Great Panthers came along and began to have uh, protests, began to meet, so that there were people who had gray hair, people <laughs> working together uh, and, and addressing some of the things, injustices, like being forced to retire. It's happening now. A lot of people, uh, if they can't buy out your contract, there are people who are being pressed uh, to leave. You know, they, if they have an injury, it gets dragged out. Uh, there's a very big union that my son belongs to in the States, and they're going through this issue. Almost all of the older people, if they had anything that might be, um, you know, a physical ailment, instead of it being related to the fact that this ailment may have been caused uh, by long-term you know, riding the rails, they're trying to make it, well, it's just a personal thing. And yeah. deny them, tie up workers' comp uh, compensation cases into long years, dug out things. But I think that, you know, I've said we have to lace up our shoes. It's like the people that were in the basketball game that were sitting back on the side, <laughs> uh, lace up our shoes and get back into the game because we do have these advocacy skills. We have this experience. And, you know, uh, I've suddenly started, you know, while we've been doing, having these talks, got questionnaires from people, uh, requests to take part in surveys, uh, invitations to be in virtual meetings. It's a lot easier now that we don't have to meet at a particular place, that we can meet virtually. And if we fill out a questionnaire, like there's this um, Vancouver, not Vancouver Votes, but it's Vancouver, Talk Vancouver. But I had been asking the question, how can seniors have a part in the city plan? You say that you want an age-friendly city. And from out of the blue, you know, the survey came. So I thought, you know, if the survey came and as we're talking with each other and other people are talking, it's just having a virtual meeting where we go from talk, as you said, to, well, do we write a letter? Who's responsible? Who's the person responsible for, responsible for that particular thing? And uh, engaging them in a conversation about what should be done differently. I think there's an opportunity being missed down in the in the U.S. right now, particularly for unions to they want the economy reopened and they want people to go back to work and all that. And this lack of t testing infrastructure that the the government is failing on and the companies aren't stepping up to do it. So maybe there's an opportunity for unions to go, hey, look, you know, everyone's organizing and, and rallying here. We need to get people tested so that we can deal with this uh, this pandemic. And, and maybe there's a role for unions in the size of them to be able to go after those those testing devices or, or whatever the infrastructure is and set it up because the company, as I said, companies aren't doing and the, uh, the administration at the federal level is failing at it. So there could be a spot there. But do you think the same thing is true here? Like for the meatpacking, um, whatever it, union represents meat packers, there have been these outbreaks in both poultry and you know pork processing. Do you think that those unions are advocating strongly enough? I, I think they, they could do it. I mean, they're big enough to be able to take member dues, even if it's, uh, if it's to test people who aren't members or aren't yet members, right? But to take, that would be a big PR win, I think, if, uh, if a big, you know, like a UFCW sized union that's dealing with the meat packers is going, the company's not dealing with this and we want to get people back to work. So we're going to do it. And then they go to the medical suppliers to get at the tests and be able to set that up. I mean, it makes them look good, makes them look valuable as, uh, as something that a, a new employee wants to be a part of. Um, that's an out loud thought I'm just having right now, but like, Unions don't have the, the visibility they used to have. And that's part of their, the problem. They don't, people don't see the value of them. And they've been systematically undermined for the last yeah. 40, 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, they certainly have. Um, I give to you Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Ronald Reed. And, and she, she uh, the, the North 
east of England has, oh, well, the north of England, has never recovered from that um, confrontation uh, between the police and between the coal miners. Um, it was so vitriolic um, and uh, it just hasn't recovered. That relationship has, has not recovered. And then of course there's no coal mining left in, in England now, not to speak of, so. But the, um, the memory of, of those clashes, um, you know, the, the, and the police actually between a rock and a hard place they were unleashed on the coal miners. So, mm -hmm. so yes, uh, Judith, they, the uh, unions have been undermined um, for a, a long, a long period of time. Yeah. yeah. So maybe, so maybe, maybe the unions have run their course. Maybe it's time to look in different directions. Mm. Well, as you said, we, we have this gathering where we talk. There are a number of other places where people are having conversations. And Gail, Gail Harwood is uh, away from the, the area of Wi-Fi zone right now, but she talked a lot about mentors, you know, that we have, we who have worked in different jobs, we who have different experiences can be mentors where there are people, you know, younger people or people that are working and striving toward getting some type of action going that we might be mentors to that group to help them with the you know questions or directions so that they could be more effective we had a conversation on one of our episodes around advocacy and that's partly you know what it takes because it's just kind of fell through the cracks everybody got to the point where they were striving to get to the top or striving for as you said you know another a third tv or whatever but now that uh the lion is at the door and people are losing rights or being subject to more uh, you know invasive invasive technology that maybe we might be able to offer ourselves as mentors where we see glimmers of light where there are people starting to work toward things putting voices and putting skills behind it could possibly you know possibly help you muted leslie Wow. I could see you. Your mouth is moving, but I can't hear you. No. Okay, we have some creative arts. Uh, we have always within our section looked at the creative arts, ways that people have reflected in stories around topics. So, um, Chris or Pat, who would like to go first with sharing? I wouldn't mind going first simply because I have to leave shortly after that because I have another appointment. Okay. Now, one thing I want to know, because I don't know this about Zoom, I can't get my, what I'm writing, it's up on the screen. If I drag it across the Zoom screen, will you be able to see me or you just hear me? Uh, if you share your screen, That'll be what we see first and foremost, but we might also be able to see your head in the corner. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it across right now, and you tell me if you can see me. Okay. Can you see me? Can you see me? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, then that's okay. I don't. I won't be able to see you, but that's all right. Is that okay with you? That's fine. fine. Yeah. Okay. So this is a, this is a story on the screen is you. Yeah, we're not trying to see her words. She just wants to read her words. I want to see my words, yeah. She I want wants to, to see, but we don't have to see the words. No. Okay. No. All right. Okay, so this was written quite a while ago, and it's another holiday. It's um, Christmas, and the title is Serendipitous Downtown, Down, Downtown Eastside Christmases. I walked to the door of the Portland Hotel Society on East Hastings to meet up with other choir members. It's Christmas Eve. Don't know where I expected to be, but not here. Jack, a resident in this low cost housing project and a choir member, staffs the propped open door on the street and lets people in. He gives me a grunt and a nod as I walk through. He sits in his wheelchair with one, his one leg, the other amputated. 
Soon he'll join us in the common room where he, when he decides that everyone who's coming has arrived. Getting off the elevator on the 10th floor, I walk down the empty corridor, past the TV, TV room where a couple of residents are watching films and into the common room. Vanessa greets me with a big smile, a hug and Pat, welcome to the Woodward Community Singers. Vanessa Richards has this infectious personality that makes everyone feel special. It doesn't matter that only a handful of people have shown up on this quiet night of the year. Vanessa smiles. It'll be what it will be. Vanessa is the choir director, a beautiful woman inside and out, whose musical and acting talents are immense, whose heart is even bigger. She has the ability to inspire people to sing from the moment they step through the door. Slowly, people keep drifting through the doors, longtime members, some here for the first time, others like me, the occasional drop-in. We're now a group of 16. Vanessa greets everyone with the same warmth, directs them to tea and cookies. She's perpetual motion, moving and swaying, preparing her body, soul, and voice for singing. Vanessa makes it easy to follow the songs, even if it's the first time hearing them. They're repetitive lines, songs from Africa, folk songs from around the world, songs of hope, peace, struggle. We sing a few songs then, and then off we go, down East Hastings, a troop of songsters. We sing to people who aren't thinking about Christmas. They're just trying to make it, make it to the next day. Before we head out, Vanessa gently reminds us reminds people unfamiliar with the downtown east side to be there without judgment, be there with acceptance and love. Our first stop is Insight, the, same, the safe injection site for drug users. Vanessa rings the doorbell and the gang of us stream in the door. Vanessa chats it up with one of the workers. She's well known and loved on the, on the downtown east side. She has a hug for everybody. We're crowded in a small reception area with many Insight clients. One or two look mildly interested in us. Most are in their own world or in agony. We sing a couple of songs to whomever can hear us. The workers thank us. We move on. We move out onto the street in front of Insight and continue to sing. As people walk by, some stopping to listen. Hard to tell what's going on inside of them. Others, eyes averted, keep on walking. Vanessa calls out to some downtown east side cronies who are delighted to see her. Next stop, a couple of blocks later, is Rainier, a transition house for women who've moved off the streets, getting help, pulling their lives together. The staff are women who've been there. We move upstairs to their kitchen, catching the delicious smell of turkey, freshly roasted, sitting on the counter, waiting for Xmas dinner the next day. A few residents join us. One of them, Jill, has a melodic, strong voice. Her smile is charming, even with very few teeth. She lost everything, including her love of music and the blur of drugs and violence. Now at Rainier, she's discovered her voice again and love of piano, which is where we found her when we got there, playing beautifully, singing along alone in the room. After a few rounds of songs and chatting with residents, we say goodnight and walk back to my and I walk back to my car. On the way home, CDC mentions the Aboriginal Center in the 300 block of Maine needs volunteers to give out foods and gifts the next day, Christmas. Well, why not? This place is beginning to feel familiar. Christmas morning on Main Street in Hastings. I'm working alongside a bunch of people, sorting food, filling up bags to, to be handed out, flattening boxes to make room for more boxes. There's a noticeable hierarchy within the Aboriginal community, which seems to work for them. I pick up an attitude from the workers about people outside in line getting food, perhaps their third or fourth round. Those people is what I hear. I'm one of the few white people there. Walking back to my car parked near Oppenheimer Park, I suddenly remember Christmas morning 41 years ago in this very neighborhood on this very street. On the spur of the moment, I had taken three-year-old Ty, my son, and 12-year-old Jamie, my daughter, to church at St. James Church on Cordova on Christmas Day. Somehow the idea of going to church in a poor neighborhood made sense. I don't remember anything about the service, but what I do recall vividly was this older man standing outside the door when we came out of church. 
looking like he was looking for someone, something. I said, Merry Christmas. He smiled, said something to, to the kids, and I decided on the spot to ask him to come to our place, a small basement flat on Fairview Slope with a wood stove for Christmas. He nodded yes and smiled. We piled into my Ford panel truck, once a Canadian military vehicle. I soon found out that he didn't speak any English or not enough to carry on conversations. Somehow we managed. That's it. Mm. Hey. That's wonderful. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, hadn't, I hadn't looked at that for a long time. It was the first one that popped up in my, uh, in my folder. I remember Vanessa singing with Vanessa. She really was lovely. Really, yeah, well, it, the, right inside you. It's no longer called Woodward Community Sing. Is it, it's now oh. Van Van. We and we moved from there oh. to um, to well, at one point we moved to um, three eleven. You know the the old police station. Yes, but yes. then that changed, and we were meeting over at Britannia. She's, oh, she's and uh, I don't know what's happening now, but I right. I think that she may be doing things outside. And I'd like to join them. I, I belong to another community choir too, so yeah. Anyway, um, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot about the labor movement. I, I've learned a lot too, so thank you. And I wish I could hang around later uh, longer, but I have to go now, so thank okay. you. Thank you for sharing Bye. that story. It was like, very vivid. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Bye, Pat. Bye. No, let me see. Okay, leave. See you on Tuesday. So, Chris, are you going to share yours? Sure. I printed mine out because it's easier to read when it's bigger print. <laughs> the room is stark. Walls an indistinguishable pale color. Chairs are piled up and lined along the wall. There are a few folded gray tables resting along another wall. Only a skylight serves to light the room, though it's not much use under the grayness of Vancouver skies. An empty bookcase stands in one corner and a stand with newsprint in another. The outlets are all without covers. A volunteer knocks on the door and enters the room. Oh, sorry, unlocks the door and enters the room. She is an older woman with short white hair. Her white t-shirt is emblazoned with rainbows of maple leaves. She takes off her olive green backpack and puts it on a chair. She looks around at the tables and chairs, sighing. She arranges a table and a couple of chairs and puts out her laptop. She sits and waits. She comes here once a month and waits. There's no clock on the wall. Even so, she hears a clock ticking. Perhaps this will be one of those days that nobody comes and maybe I'll be able to leave early. A staff person comes to the door. Sue, Julie had a call an hour or so ago. There's someone coming who wants to talk to you. Sue sits down again, takes out her laptop and begins looking at email. As she downloads, she sees help, urgent asylum seeker, needs sponsorship, so many requests, so many desperate people. She begins typing a reply. She has a template that she often uses. Before anyone can help you, you must leave your country. She hears voices of people approaching, looks up. Here you are, Julie says to the man standing next to her. Sue stands up, moving towards the door. Welcome, I'm Sue, come on in. The man appeared to be somewhere in his late 20s or 30s, darker skin, almond-shaped eyes. They settle themselves facing each other across the table. He holds a bag close to his chest, his arms holding it tightly. He looks down at the floor. I don't know, he said. Somebody told me I should come here. I've been in Canada for several years and I'm afraid I'll have to go home. I can't go home. I've been to see several lawyers, but they haven't been able to help me. 
So why don't you tell me a bit about yourself? What's your name? Remember, my name is Sue. Mohammed, he says. Great, thanks. First of all, can you tell me what your status is in Canada? Are you a student, a visitor? Perhaps your visa has expired? Don't worry, we are here to help you as best we can. We don't work for the government or any other official agency. So what country are you from and how did you get to Canada? I'm from Malaysia and I came as a student five years ago. My father found out I'm gay and has cut me off, told me I have to come back. I just can't go back. So how can we help? I don't know, he said. I've been to see several lawyers, paid them lots of money, I've made several applications, and each time I've been denied. I just don't know what to do now. Did any of them suggest you make a refugee claim? Sue asked. No, it never came up. Were you out to them? Yes, I think so, he said. Okay, I'm really shocked that not even one of them suggested a refugee claim. Are you open to making such a claim? Anything that will help me stay here. I just can't go back. They'll pressure me to get married. I just want to live a normal life. I want a relationship with someone and maybe even have children. Just so you know, Sue said, in Canada, all those things are possible. It is possible for two people of the same gender to be in a relationship, get married and have children. Now, back to how to stay in Canada. Coming from Malaysia, you have a very good possibility of making a successful refugee claim. We could start you off in the right direction. Let me just go get you a sheet from the other room, she said. Sue returns to the room, a piece of paper in her hand. As she enters the room, Mohammed is standing up, tears in his eyes. Sue approaches him, paper in hand, he throws his arms around her. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Very impactful. I yeah, that was brilliant. Yeah. Does so, you have a title for that story? Pardon me? Do you have a title for your story? Um, I've had several titles, but I haven't really got one that, that, that I'm happy with. When I, when I wrote this, we were doing something around uh, LGBTQI rights. And so originally the title was, So You Think We Have All Our Rights? Mm -hmm. um, that was my, kind of the working title. And then I thought about terror and relief. And I thought, no, I don't want to go to the relief because that has that that foreshadows too much what's going to happen at the end. So that's kind of where I'm sitting at the moment. Any suggestions would be gratefully accepted. What do you think, Sylvie? I think it's um, as to a suggestion um, for your uh, title for your story. Um, not at the moment. I have to always, when, when I'm uh, asked on the spot, I have to sift through the debris. So it takes me a while to, <laughs> to come up with an answer, uh, Chris, but I will think about it. I will. But okay. I, I love the story. I, I, it, I just, when I hear, it's a reminder to me. When I hear stories like that, I, I, I'm reminded how lucky I am. You know, on those days when I'm thinking, ah, oh, poor me, poor me, poor me. Um, I, you know, I have nothing to, um, but, but to be thankful. You know, my life in comparison with others is uh, you know, a piece of cake. So, but I will think about your title. Okay. I, will, <laughs> I, may, I may email you if I come up with something really good. Yeah, that would be fine as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was beautifully written, incredibly descriptive, and the content was so impactful. Yeah, thank you. It was just excellent. Thank you.
Yeah, it makes me think of a link between stories and advocacy, because when people are trying to organize people around an issue, hearing a story like that just kind of helps, as you said, you have a contrast with your life and might get people more inspired or committed to help. So. Yes, yeah. Always, if you can relate it. I, if, well, for me, I, everything is related to me in my life. I, as um, you know egocentric as that sounds but it does that's how i i get to understand things better yeah. if i can but, but i also think that's the place where it's important to start we start with our own experience our own reality and only then can we kind of move out to think about to sort of be able to think about other people right yeah. um yeah. i mean in terms of this um over the years, I have done a lot of organizing and a lot of advocacy and managed, managed to get legislation in Canada changed over the course of the last 30 years. Um, and I always go back to Margaret Mead, who said, it only takes a few committed, thoughtful, committed people to change the world, and it's the only thing that ever does. <laughs> so... You know, with so many problems we have in the world right now, it's like, oh, we could just sit back. I mean, I feel so overwhelmed some days. It's like, oh, oh yeah, but I can just go one person at a time. That's all I can do. Yes. Well, as you say, a small committed group. We have a small committed group that for, is it four episodes? Have we done 18 episodes, Luke? I think we're over 20 at this point. Yes, so we have got things that where people have gotten information or more people have joined or people are listening. So it is one of the ways that change occurs. And it's a thing that I think we're in a pivot. And as we, you know, Joel has a story, Chris has a story, I have a story. We have stories of ways that our labor has been impacted and we have possibly an election coming up. So connecting those stories to things that people want or need to make part of their platform, I think will be you know, very effective. It's not just going into the wind. There's real, um, we have a process. We have a democratic process and we have opportunity to be involved in it. So thank you all for this joining us on this pre-Labor Day weekend. I, <laughs> I, I we, we won't be just having our, pic, our picnics or our regular ways of enjoying it, but as we pivot, you know, I bid you joy and safety and look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. and Chris, I just put a title suggestion in the text window. Sure. In the message window, I've just put a title suggestion. I can't go back. <laughs> oh, I can't go back. Okay. That's a good title. Yeah. I can't go back. Yeah, that's I a good one. Go yeah. I like that. Yeah. It has a double meaning. It does. Yeah, yeah. yeah it does. Yes. Okay. Thanks very much. Yeah. And Sylvie, I'm still open to getting something from you as well. All right. I'll just have to muse on it for a while. <laughs> that's quite okay. Musings are great. <laughs> Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, as our childhood friend said, the more we get together, the happier we'll be. Yeah. yeah. See you all next week. Bye. Yes. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye